So I'm a pastoral counselor. My doctorate's in counseling. I cannot tell you how many clients I've had who were profoundly abused, usually by their fathers, usually religious. And they get to the point where they're ready to confront the perpetrator. And they say to me with some confidence and a lot of naivete, they say, I know the family will get behind me in this because they all saw it happen. They all know it happened. And I'm the one who has to say to them, oh, yeah, actually, no. Uh, you're going to be twisting in the wind all by yourself. Because even though it's a corrupt family system, the people in that system care more about belonging to the system than they do to the truth. Literally. And it's not about what's true and what's not true. It's about what allows me to belong, what does not allow me to belong. And most people do not have the ego strength to be able to stand on their own with the truth. Their ego need is much, much too great. Well, hey, Dropouts, this is Brandon. And this is Chelsea. And we are here with Paula Stone-Williams. I am so excited to have Paula here. Brandon's going to give you um, some accolades and, and a little introduction before we start to hear from Paula. But we um, are super thankful for you guys for sending us to the Evolving Faith Conference. You guys remember back a few months ago when we went there because of your funding, and we're still so thankful. And one of the biggest blessings we took away that we shared with you from that conference was Paula. And um, I, I creeped in DMs, I creeped in emails, and uh, we we got lucky that the stalker tactic worked. And um, so it is a huge blessing to have her here. And um, Brandon, I'd love for you to kind of take it away with who, who she is a, a little bit. Yeah, well, I want you guys to know that uh, Paula is an internationally known speaker on issues of gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and, rich, and uh, religious tolerance. Uh, she's been featured in TED Women, TED Summit, The New York Times, Red Table Talk, TED Mile High, The Washington Post, NPR, Good Morning America, CNN, ABC, PBS. You guys, she has done a lot and she, she is known for speaking. Um, that's how we were introduced to her. But uh, her TED Talks have over 9 million views in Paula's recent memoir as, as of 2021 is called As a Woman what I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned. Wow. I'm Paula, I just get, am so honored to have you on, on the podcast uh, because of uh, who you are and who, who I've discovered you to be since Evolving Faith, but um, also just uh, for the level of, um, of speaker that you are. Mm -hmm. So I'm really yeah, honored that you. You, would, you would join our podcast. Yeah, it's, I love being at Evolving Faith. That's my first time there. It was an interesting week for me because I had been at TED Women as uh, serving as what they call a speaker's ambassador, which is uh, working with the speakers. Most of the time you're backstage with them mm -hmm. or in the green room. And, you know, you're dealing with some of the smartest women on earth, but none of them are particularly speakers. And so one of the things I love the most at this point in my life is being able to coach speakers. In fact, that's a mm -hmm. big part of what I do now. I'm a, a main coach for one of the largest TEDx's in North America, and then I'm a speaker's ambassador for TED, but it is a very secular environment. And so to mm -hmm. go from that uh, to evolving faith was like, whoa, this is a, yeah, okay, I'm back in the world I used to inhabit, uh, that I'm <laughs> not much involved with anymore. So it really was um, unusual. Plus, usually um, when I'm speaking, people know who I am, what I've done, where I'm coming from. And it was fun at Evolving Faith because apparently nobody had a clue who I was, um, but they did after I spoke. Um, so that was kind mm -hmm. of fun in having that whole experience of being kind of anonymous uh, until until my session. And then afterwards, uh, talking with really so many hundreds of people, I guess. Yeah, we um, we were I remember when you when you stepped on the stage and you started speaking it was, I, I really, and I don't want to say this in any kind of negative way, but I think you were the first time Brandon and I both looked at each other and it was like, I don't even, we remember not even taking very many notes because we were so encompassed in your story. And like, it was just, we both afterwards were like, what did you, neither of us, we had like one line down because we were just so engulfed in what you were sharing. And it was just, it was, it was incredible. And so to, to have you in this platform sharing with people 
that weren't able to be there, you know, that don't know your story. Like I guarantee most of our listeners um, is just a huge privilege, but Mm -hmm. I kind of want to jump off by saying, I don't want to share the book, right? Because we want our listeners to buy it. So we're going to share all that information in our um, the show notes of this episode so you guys can get to the book and buy it yourself. But um, what do you feel like were some of the big things when you think about the patriarchy after you transitioned? Can you kind of share some of that with us a little bit? I know the Cliff's notes maybe, but um, what yeah. can you kind of share? I mean, it's... It's pretty much the same thing as my very first TED Talk, the one that's had like 7 million views. I've heard from women on all seven continents about that talk, all seven. I mean, including two women from Antarctica. Um, And all of them thanking me for validating their experience. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's just no way. It's all he's ever known. It's all he ever will know. And, you know, I worked hard to get where I got. I was very successful in my denomination. And I really worked hard to get there. What I don't think I ever realized was that I began way closer to the finish line than anybody else. And in this life, which I've now been living for 10 years, it is so frustrating every single week. Uh, in the last couple of months, it's been incredibly frustrating to, uh, to just not be treated as someone who has the knowledge I have. Uh, you know, when it comes to church planting, getting new churches up and running and started in a healthy way, uh, the church I've been involved with starting over the last six years, uh, pretty much every single decision they made was something that I recommended that they not make. And we closed the church in November because it wasn't sustainable because we didn't start the church in the way we should have. And it was just shocking to me that that entire world wanted to treat me as if I had just arrived on the planet 10 years ago, as if I had nothing to say because I'm a woman. And it, it really is maddening. That's where I can compare apples to apples because, you know, here I was working in that world for 35 years and then working in it again for the last six. The first 35, I had built up, um, you know, I, I think a lot of respect for the work I did. We were one of the two largest in the nation of what we did, and I was the CEO. And people tended to trust that I'd done my work, that mm-hmm. when I said something, that it was based on knowledgeable information that was verifiable. And in fact, you know, practiced in, in the real world. And the assumption on this side of the divide is that I really have not a clue what I'm talking about. I'm just constantly challenged, constantly questioned, and then overruled in decisions that um, then, you know, pretty much guarantee an outcome that I told them would happen. It's maddening. But, you know, the two areas where I can see the most continuity are the church, Christianity on one side, the other side is I travel a lot. I've always traveled speaking a lot. And so it, it's interesting there. I can compare apples with apples because the way I'm treated by the airlines, by the hotel industry, the rental car counters, all the places that I used to get super preferential treatment before, I'm still at the same level. I'm Titanium Elite for Marriott. I am President's Club with, with Hertz. I am Executive Platinum with American but I'm treated as if I had no status whatsoever. It is just amazing to me, the difference in the way I'm, I'm treated now. You know, I'll be standing in line waiting to board because I'm in the very first row at the aisle seat. I've got to put stuff in the overhead, not much room in the overhead. And as a guy, nobody ever asked why I was there waiting to board first. As a woman, all the time, it's like, ma'am, you need to get out of the way. That's, that's for the first class uh, flyers. That would be me. Well, why, why would you be in line now? Well, because I'm in 1D. I'm pretty much always in 1D. And this is a 319. And a 319 actually does not have enough overhead space. So if I don't get on quickly, my bag is going to be at the very back of first class. And I'm going to have to go backwards. To... Just trust that I know what the I'm saying. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so right. frustrating. Those are the two areas that I see it the most. Others I can extrapolate out from that. I ran for public office. I'm on the city council here. And, you know, I, I was not in government as a guy. And, but at, at this point, from the areas that I do cross over, I'm able to, to look at that and see, oh, yeah, this is how I would have been treated if I was still Paul. This is how I'm treated as Paula. Everybody thinks they have to explain things two or three times over. You know, one of the things is people assume a woman, if she's qualified, can only be qualified in one area. She cannot be qualified in multiple areas. 
And so, I mean, because really, I mean, she's a woman in leadership. How could she have gotten here with multiple qualifications? It's frustrating to me that people will often, it's like, well, you know something about religion, but how could you know anything about government? Or how could you know anything about, um, you know, any one of a number of areas? And I've been a Renaissance person for decades. I know a lot about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I like to be trusted. And when you're a woman, the assumption is you you should not be trusted. Everything you say has to be verified and preferably verified by a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Um, little you talked a little bit about your your history in in the church and in uh, that organization that you were in, um, Paula. I know that that wasn't a church that was church adjacent. Am I right? Or correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it was church adjacent. I also was okay. on the regular preaching team of two mega churches. So oh, I was yeah. regularly working in that local church environment. Plus we were one of the largest church planting organizations within our denomination of 7,000 churches. And um, as the years went by, one of the main things I did was chair the board of new churches that were growing extremely rapidly, where we had very charismatic, but also not always mature lead pastors. And my job is to stop them from shooting themselves in the foot. So I was working very, very closely in local church environments, either chairing the board, I might be chairing 10 of them at a time. Well, I don't think I ever did 10, maybe six or seven at a time. And then also I was preaching once a month in two different mega churches. So yes, I was running a parachurch wow. organization, but it was very integrally associated with the church. Would you give our audience some of your story of transitioning while you while you were sure. in those? I know a little bit from um, your TED talk uh, with your son, but I, I'd love to to for our audience to hear your story. Yeah, I knew from the time I was four or five that I was trans. Nobody knew anything about it then. You know, this is a hundred years ago when they were like two books out on the subject. And I, I knew I couldn't transition and stay in my job or stay in the good graces of any of my friends. And so I just really worked hard not to have to transition and was in therapy for a very long time. And then finally got to the point where I knew there was a real good chance I wouldn't survive if I didn't transition. Uh, those with gender dysphoria, which is what it's called in the DSM-5, have a six times higher suicide attempt rate than any other diagnosis in the DSM. 41% of us will attempt to take our lives at some point or another during life. I did not get to that point, but I definitely had serious suicidal ideation. But even then, I, I just didn't want to do it to my wife. I didn't want to do it to my children. And when it came to me that I needed to do it, it came as a call. Uh, And, you know, I'm not somebody who's ever talked about subjective cause of God, but it came as a call. You know, I was watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost, in its final season. Many of you were Lost fans. Um, There comes a point where the protagonist, Jack, realizes he's been called by the God figure to die. And I realized watching that particular show, which is when he's at the lighthouse and sees his home reflected in the mirror there. I realized I'd been called to die. And I sobbed. I sobbed until I fell asleep on the floor. I was home alone. Um, and I slept for a few hours and woke up and sobbed till dawn. Because Paula, I knew how, I'd been called. How old were you? How old were you at this uh, point? This was just 10 years ago. So I was very old already. I'm older than dirt. So we don't need to talk about how old I am. I will tell you with great confidence, I'm a good bit older than you think I am. Well, you look great, no but I just wanted you, I wanted <laughs> to ask that because I wanted them to understand the timeline of like, you're not talking yeah. when you were a teenager. This is, this is, no. this is re- No, this was after I was uh, th- at that point, uh, vocationally, I was a chairman of the board and CEO of the second largest church planting organization in the nation. I was the editor at large of a national magazine that had been published every Sunday since 1866. I was on the preaching team of two different mega churches. I was a pastoral counselor with a specialty in, in counseling uh, mega church lead pastors. So I was counseling some of the most powerful pastors in the nation. 
Um, so yeah, I was I was doing a lot of uh, things that come to someone who's worked hard and who is well educated and white, and uh, working within the evangelical world. Yeah. Did what you... happened next after? Oh, Chelsea, go. Oh, I I was literally Excellent. just gonna say I I hate to put it this way, um, because of what I know you gained in that decision but from what we know of your story you you lost everything I lost dying yeah to who you yeah i lost all of my jobs within 24 hours um i lost my pension which is worth over a million dollars i knew literally thousands of people by name within my denomination uh, because i was one of its national leaders i've had substantive conversations with seven of those people post transition uh, and I mean, I don't know how many I knew, a couple thousand probably. So very few people knew as much about the denomination as I did, in part because I had to raise money all over the country, but primarily because of my position as editor at large of our national magazine. So yeah, it uh, I lost everything overnight. I mean, it was pretty instant. And everybody cut off my entire family as well. How did you share? How did you decide? Like, and I know decision's a weird word, but what was that step of like letting, let, I, I want to say almost coming out, if you will, if that's a problem. Well, it was way. coming out. Yeah, it's definitely coming out. Um, I don't think there was any limits to my white male entitlement or my, or my privilege. I just assumed these people have known me for decades. So there are two options. Either what they understood about gender dysphoria is wrong or what they understood about my character was wrong. What shocked me was they all opted for the character. It's like, oh, apparently Paul was not ever who we thought he was. Um, instead of saying, huh, maybe we should go back and understand gender dysphoria a little bit better because we certainly know this person and we certainly know this person's character. Right. Yep. That to me was shocking and profoundly disappointing. Yeah. I, it, it, I was literally reading a book today um, and it's like the third time I've read it and it's by Matthew West, or Matthew Vines, Matthew West. It's by Matthew Vines, but he says something in there about how um, I literally posted on my Instagram, this quote about how it's so crazy that the evangelical church will never stop and say, we've, we've experienced these lived experiences with people that we love, people that we care about, our sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters. And this was more about just the LGBTQ community in general. And instead of saying, maybe the scriptures that we hold so tight and on this subject or the, the way we see this is so black and white, could we maybe be getting something wrong with this if we know what you just said if we know the character of these people and and we know who they are but our faith is telling us not to love them and something's not right something's off no it's got to yeah. be that we have to hate them it's got to be that they're right. messed up. they're in sin and it's just mind-blowing yeah a lot of the work that matthew and his organization do um would would match oh let's say justin lee's book torn or what I think is the best book for those who are still in the evangelical world, a Kobe Martin's book, um, Unclobber. Mm -hmm. All of those are written specifically looking at the exegesis of six passages. Yep, I don't right. think that's where the problem lies. The problem doesn't right. lie there at all. The problem lies uh, hermeneutically, not exegetically, in how you view scripture as a whole. Yep. And I actually believe the problem is more anthropological than it is biblical or religious at all. And let me explain what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. There are nine tribal species. Uh, Edward O. Wilson was a professor at MIT and Harvard, and he won two Pulitzer Prizes. The first was identifying that the key social unit for our species is not the nuclear family. Key social unit for our species was the tribe. And he says, and most would agree, we never took off until we became a tribal species. It wasn't until we left the realm of blood kin and moved to the realm of tribe that we developed languages, developed civilizations, and really took off as a species. 
And there were only nine tribal species. And this is where the second Pulitzer Prize was in, identifying the nine. And all nine, um, the way you would expect them to behave is an enemy comes into the camp, the tribe unites, defeats the enemy. Some members of the tribe die, but in the process, the tribe remains intact and life goes on. He said that is, in fact, how eight of these nine species have evolved. Unfortunately, the ninth tribal species, and he calls them eusocial species, by the way, that's spelled E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L. He says the ninth tribal species evolved to believe an enemy was necessary for the tribe to survive. And where no natural enemy exists, they create one. That is where the problem lies. It's not theological, it's not exegetical, it's not even hermeneutical. It is tribal. It is the need of human tribes to create enemies that do not exist. And right now we're the enemy du jour. And you know, you see this throughout history. It's probably most egregious in the last uh, 100 years would be the Third Reich with the Jewish community, but the marks are always the same. It's a helpless community community that has no real lobby. We're 0.58% of the population. Mm-hmm. And it is driven by tribal behavior. In this case, it's not driven by Republicans, interestingly. 61% of Republicans think trans people should have the same civil rights as everybody else. And you say, well, wait a minute, it's all driven by Republican legislatures. That's correct. But they're responding to their constituents. Who's driving the 590 Anti-trans laws that have been introduced, the 90 that have been passed into law, it's evangelical Christians, 87% of whom believe gender is immutably determined at birth, 67% of whom believe we are already giving too many civil rights to trans people, and yet only 31% of those who actually know someone who's out as a trans person. But that's where it's coming from. It's coming from the creation of of enemies that don't exist. And if if all of that resonates with you, um, the easiest way to get a good sense of all that is to watch uh, the Fresh Air episode with E.O. Wilson from maybe three or four years ago, five years ago. Uh, he died last year. Um, but it's a just a two-hour episode with Terry Gross. And he chillingly says, we don't get a hold of that. We lose the species and we lose the planet as we know it. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening now to us is what's happened from the beginning of time it's a creation of enemies that don't exist. If you want to look past Wilson, uh, you can look at the work of Rene Girard, the anthropologist and philosopher, who identified what he called mimetic theory. And mimetic theory is that those in power figured out eons ago they didn't want to give up their power. And they discovered the same the best way to hold on to their power was to create a very weak uh, group of subjects. Um, so teaching original sin didn't happen for 200 years until Augustine came along. Um, But if in fact you're in power and you want to maintain control of your constituents to stay in power, well, the best thing you can do is to make them powerless and make yourself the savior. So my teaching of my teaching is the only one that can save you from your sins. And so you've got to take my interpretation of scripture or you will be going to hell. So you really better not turn me out because I'm the only one who can identify who the enemies are and help you see that clearly. So if you if you turn me out of leadership, oh, well, hey, it's on you. And so that's how religion has functioned for thousands of years and continues to function today. You might think from that that I don't think religion is a good thing. That's not true. I believe it is a good thing. I think religion is in fact what brought us together as a tribal species. It was not man's search for meaning, or it was not man's search for safety. It was man's search for meaning that brought Mm -hmm. us together. If you want to take a look at when we first became tribes, look at Stonehenge, or look at the carved bodies of Rapa Nui, or the burial mounds of indigenous Americans. Uh, It was their search for meaning that brought us together. So I think religion is good for the species. I think the fundamentalist expressions of religion particularly the desert religions, the three desert religions of scarcity, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, in their fundamentalist expressions, I think are very dangerous to the species. Mm-hmm. I, I think the most difficult part about everything that you just shared 
is you have to carry a certain level of wanting and a certain level of intelligence to, or even a certain level of openness, which thank God we have an audience that has that. Mm-hmm. What is so terrifying to us and what, I mean, what drove me out of ministry and Brandon, I really think you too, just in a different was this lack of openness to listen to any of that, which isn't your opinion. And it isn't what you wrote in your journal. It it is fact and science and psychology. And we had a, um, a really, really close friend. I'm thinking about Jen, who is a psychologist, a licensed psychologist. She's got like two master's degrees, incredibly intelligent. And she was a, a pastor on our district for a very short time. And of course they drove her out because she was a, a affirming of the LGBTQ community, of course. But she, our, our Olivet Nazarene University president, the new, when the new president had taken over, Brandon, you might remember this. He um, refused to, he, he announced publicly that he was refusing to acknowledge trans students by any name or pronoun, both, then they're, I don't even want to say God-given, but then they're by birth, name or gender is, is what he was saying. And I remember sitting down with Jen and, and she just drafting this incredibly, exactly almost what you just said, right? I mean, sharing just this incredible and, and sending it and being like, what you're doing and saying, th- these are all of the, the results of, of, if you hold that stance, here are all of the ways and all of the dangers, right? And it was received so, well, white male syndrome, number one, but it was received so like, just like it was her opinion. Like there isn't science behind all of all of these understandings of the community that you're a part of, that we're a part of um, as a bisexual woman, as a, as a transgender woman. I mean, and it just, I think it's so damaging and so hurtful to me that it feels like the, the facts never matter. It just feels like the science never matters. I think one of the things that we don't understand is that we believe and we will claim most members of our species, particularly in the West, will say we care about the truth more than anything else. We care about freedom more than anything else. It's not true. What we care about more than anything else is belonging. So I'm a pastoral counselor, my doctorate's in counseling. I cannot tell you how many clients I've had who were profoundly abused, usually by their fathers, usually religious. And they get to the point where they're ready to confront the perpetrator. And they say to me with some confidence and a lot of naivete, they say, I know the family will get behind me in this because they all saw it happen. They all know it happened. And I'm the one who has to say to them, oh yeah, actually no. Uh, You're gonna be twisting in the wind all by yourself. Because even though it's a corrupt family system, the people in that system care more about belonging to the system than they do to the truth. And so that's why you can say a million things scientifically to uh, the president of this university. And it's not about what's true and what's not true. It's about what allows me to belong, what does not allow me to belong. And most people do not have Mm -hmm. the ego strength to be able to stand on their own with the truth their ego need is much, much too great. And so you you really, if you don't have enough ego strength, you cannot stand up for the truth. That's so good. I'm going to be thinking about the word belonging in in the midst of like these church issues for, for a long time after yeah. you just said that, because we've been going, we've gone through so many couple of episode type um, issues, Chelsea and I, in the past year or two, and just what, like, like what you said, Paula, you can't, you might, you have this, like these moments of hope when you're, when you think that speaking out or bringing up facts or, or I, I can go toe to toe. We can, we can have that dialogue, I have but yet it, will, it won't, it won't divide families or, or church tribes when, when belonging is at stake. That's right. Because, right. because of what you said, yeah. like it's sometimes it's just they can't fathom the danger or the isolation that they might go into being on their own. Yeah. Yeah. The tipping point is not uh, more information, additional proof Uh, the tipping point is when the tribe decides the LGBTQ community should be um, embraced then very quickly, 
everyone falls into place because belonging right. then shifts from rejecting these people to accepting these people. And you can see it happen throughout history. You see it happen with slavery. Then you saw it happen with divorce and remarriage. Then you saw it happen with a transracial marriage. Uh, it, you know, in each of these areas, oh, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. Yeah, it's right. And once it hits that tipping point, well, then you better get on board because otherwise you're not going to be accepted. And, you know, it, it's it's the same thing this time around. Um, you know, you already see it shifting very quickly on queer issues. Uh, most recent uh, studies indicate 36% of evangelicals are supportive of marriage equality, but 51% of millennial evangelicals are supportive of marriage equality. Um, that's up 10 points from just a few years before. Mm -hmm. And I think that study I'm quoting is 2019. By now, I'm quite sure it's... a it's a much higher percentage. So we're very close to hitting the tipping point on queer issues. Uh, we are not yet on trans issues, which is interesting because that's the one that there's actually not a single biblical passage to speak against being transgender. There's not a single passage that speaks against gender dysphoria. They, they invented them because it was never a biblical argument. It was never an exegetical right. argument. It was never a hermeneutical argument. It was an argument of tribes creating enemies that don't exist. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable to me, the science, like we've talked about a million times, but the science defending it, when you take queer versus transgender, the science is all over it. <laughs> the science is all over the support of affirming the transgender community, affirming one's pronouns, affirming one. Right. So that's what's so crazy. It's like, you have to really be, you have to really be, in a tribal position, as you just spoke about, in the most toxic and dangerous of ways to not see how damaging and dangerous it is to not acknowledge someone in this gender dysmorphia, dysmorphia or in this, in, in a story of identity like yours, um, which makes me wonder, Paula, what was your family on a, on a personal level, right? We've kind of talked about your career, your multiple, multiple careers. Um, but what was your, what was it like with your family? Um, well, my extended family, uh, really only one of those people, one cousin has been fully accepting of me. There are a couple of others that make attempts, but they're still very, very firmly in the fundamentalist world. My own nuclear family, um, I prefer for them to tell that story. Uh, Kathy does not tell it. We ended our marriage. Uh, we still work together. We're both therapists. Um, but, you know, bottom line there is my sexual identity is as a lesbian and she's not. She's straight. So for us to remain married, she was not being true to herself. Uh, and she's chosen not to tell her story publicly. My son wrote a marvelous book. She's my dad. Uh, Westminster John Knox published it. That I think tells the story from his perspective quite well. It was very hard for all of them. And that's something that's not really ever going to be okay. A family... I think we thought it would take us about five years. It took 10. We were all together last week. And I think we all know that there was something lost that will never be regained. Uh, and that's sad, particularly between my son and me and between Kathy and me. Yeah. How do you reconcile with that, Paula? Uh, oh, I don't. Um, it's a broken world. I, you know, you'll find a lot of trans folks who will say, um, you know, this is this is not something that should that we should be looking for a cure for. Uh, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I mean, we know it's possibly possibly genetic, definitely prenatal, more than likely second trimester. I would love it if we could figure out what it is and stop it before it develops, uh, because it plays havoc with your life. This is not something that Paula. Mm -hmm. I, we have quite a few. I mean, I can think of like uh, several right off the top of my head, um, transgender humans who listen to our podcast. Um, but I just had a transgender pastor. They, I'm going to be very careful because right, it's not my story to tell, so I'm not going to tell their story, but they had reached out to me and asked essentially like, what do I do? Because I know that coming out will ruin 
my career. And, and most of their concern was it will ruin, it will, it will take me out of ministry that I have built, you know, for uh, so long. And that's my call, right? So they feel like ministry is their call, although they are completely not who they know they are. Um, And so basically their, their pain and their hurt as, and I, as someone that, you know, came out this last year as bisexual, lost a significant amount of things, a significant amount of speaking engagements, nothing like a career that was built for as long as your career was built. But I can't even begin to speak on, on that part of, of, of the LGBTQ community because it's not my part of the community. And so one of the biggest things I was, I was thinking about in the last couple of days was they're not here to ask that question of you, but I just wonder, you have to get that question all the time. You have to get people that see you and they're inspired by you. They're scared of your story there, you know, and what do you, what do you say to them in the younger yeah. stages, twenties and thirties? What do you say? What, yeah. what could you say? Um, I got lots and lots of inquiries and I try to answer every single one, one time. Uh, I encourage them to read my book if they really want to understand the ins and outs and pain of my story. Um, But occasionally I will speak with them and usually that's people in ministry and I will speak with them one single time. Uh, because I, that is not my calling. Uh, my calling is not to help trans people through their experience. Uh, my calling is more in the direction of gender equity and more secular, um, not as religiously oriented. Um, but one of the things I say routinely to those in ministry is don't transition if you don't have to. If you can find a way to live a good and decent life without transitioning, don't because it's going to be much worse than you think. But God, Paula, that is. A lot I of them don't want to hear that. Happy ending, But it's like, I know I could have never lived the rest of my life and I didn't have to change my whole, but I could have never, I don't even know. I told Brandon, I was so close in the, in the last few years before coming out to taking my life, Paula. And I can't yeah. even imagine living in your, in your, in a body that's not yours. And having to say, well, if you can just stomach it, you know what I mean? Like I, it's, well, I, I, um, I mean, everybody's transgender experience is their experience. So I can only speak for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't claim a cis experience. I, I'll never see life in 28 day cycles. I come to the borderlands between genders. I come from the liminal space between genders. I'm very, very comfortable there. Um, one study was done a fair number of years ago on 300 transgender people, both male to female, female to male, before hormonal treatment. And it's an fMRI study, and they discovered that all 300 people's brains were functioning about halfway between male and female. Not in every area. So for instance, trans women, that's me, and I'm a trans woman. Trans women, when it came to how they processed odors, uh, apparently always from the time of birth was the way cis females do. But when it, but trans women, how they process spatial connections is almost 100% the way men do. Uh, and it's, it's why um, I don't think it's necessarily fair for trans women to be uh, at the top level of mountain biking competition, for instance, because so much of that has to do with your spatial awareness. Uh, and it's better for me than it is for a cis female. But in most areas, you know, the it was about halfway in between. The brains were about halfway in between. Now, once you have hormonal treatment, of course, then it swings to the gender you present as. But to me, yeah, that's always where I've where I've felt comfortable. And when people ask what causes it, you know, what do you think uh, about it um, in terms of causation, I say, yeah, I really don't care. The only thing I know is that. I need to be received by the world as a female. And the world does receive me as a female. I am virtually never misgendered, which is very, very fortunate for me because I'm tall, um, but it just doesn't happen. And that, that for me is really important. 
but I don't claim a cis experience, cis female experience. Mm -hmm. I, I claim a, a trans experience. And that is very different than what a lot of transgender people are looking for. Uh, in my case, um, transitioning was a call. I would tell you, and my therapist would tell you that they did not think I was going to take my life. Um, my former wife would tell you, and my best friend, who's a therapist, would say they thought I was going to take my life. Mm. Um, but it, so it was, you know, there was significant suicidal ideation. But why are there I, different takes, Paula? Uh, oh, I think it's just perspectives. Um, it, I, I, uh, I'm a verbal processor, as you could probably tell. And so I would process more negatively with my spouse and my best friend uh, than I did with my therapist. With my therapist, I I was um, probably processing more accurately, if that's a correct word. I don't think that's correct. I was processing uh, more solution-driven mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to emotionally. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was part of the difference there. But I... I um, you know, one of the things I, I have to say to pretty much all trans women, and it's a lot easier for trans men to pass than trans women, a lot of reasons for that. But I say to pretty much all trans women, do not look at my life as an example of what your life is going to be like post-transition. Because you're likely not going to be offered to do a TED Talk that has 7 million views. You're not going to find yourself um, writing a book for Simon & Schuster. You're not going to be speaking to corporations all over the world. Uh, I mean, I got really, really lucky. And so, yes, my life is better than it was before. My influence is broader than it was before, which evangelicals just hate. Yeah, oh, uh, I my, uh, <laughs> my opportunities are far greater than they were before. But that is not typical. I really cannot think of more than two or three trans people on earth where that is the case. I mean, certainly Laverne Cox, um, Janet Mock, uh, Jenny Boylan, um, you know, m maybe Joy Layden. I mean, there aren't many whose life is easier post-transition than mine. So I, I tell those people when in that one time I speak with them, don't take my experience uh, as uh, what yours is likely to be, because mine has been far better, uh, and and really, I think that's just good fortune. Yeah. Would you still say that's something like God's hand on your life, Paula? I don't know. Um, I'm a far more spiritual being as a female than I was as a male. I know that, and I think a lot of that has to do with the loss of testosterone and the arrival of estrogen. I think there's a there's a groundedness to of, of being with the earth that estrogen brings that testosterone actually mitigates against. And so I feel more grounded with the notion of God, but I also would not in any way, shape or form be an evangelical at this point. I would still identify as a Christian, um, mm -hmm. but I, um, you know, the way I define God at my church is the God who burst on the scene 14 billion years ago in all of God's complexity, mystery, and ever-expansiveness, which is defining the Big Bang, rooted in relationship and grounded in love. Rooted in relationship is defining the prime discovery of quantum physics, that the core building blocks of the universe are not made of matter. They are made of a pattern of relationships between non-material entities. So ultimately, relationships are the ultimate core building blocks of the universe. So that's where I say rooted in relationship and grounded in love, because if relationships are the core building blocks of the universe, then the most powerful force in the universe is love. And that to me is God. Well, this has been Which a, would, uh, by the way, agree with what uh, the Apostle John wrote uh, in his letters to the church as well. Amen. Yeah. This has been an interesting and just a, a lovely chat with you, Paula. Um, we uh, we wanted to close with um, with this quote from you. 
um, that you that you spoke on uh, in involving faith, and you said anyone or anything that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Yeah, um, that's let me let me give you the whole poem of that if we have time please, for it. That's David White. Please. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. It is time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark, the dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see in the daytime. You must learn one thing. 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 The world was made to be free in. You must give up all the other worlds, except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Yeah. David White, sweet darkness. (laughs) You know, I did not expect, I, Everything I've watched, everything I've read, Paula, you are so intelligent that I didn't expect to feel any emotions, really. <laughs> I'm like, I really, I really expected your intelligence and, and just your wisdom and your word and the things that I know you taught us that you'll teach our listeners. But I think anyone who's listening to this, even Brandon as a straight male, you know, you've lost a ton in, in allying with me. <laughs> An allying with the community, just being my friend, you've lost a ton, (laughs) you know, my God, which I'm sorry, by the way, a little bit, but I, I sit in this space listening to you and, you know, it's just, it's so emotional because there's so much gratitude over me that there are people like you who have stepped into the space that, that I really do believe God has made you to be. And to proclaim that so boldly, no matter what it's cost you. Um, and although you're not somebody, like you said, you don't, you don't, because every transgender human's experience is so different. You're not a coach to transgender people that need to tell, you know, but as a member of the LGBTQ community, I can tell you that it, it gives me so much hope. Um, not that I'll be doing a Ted talk, although God, I am not putting that past my career. Okay. (laughs) So I'm just saying, but, and I'm not putting the book publishing out either. So you just wait for me. Okay. But I, I have such hope listening to you and watching your career and, and watching you on the Ted talk stage and the people engaging and, and playing your Ted talk for people like my husband who are a little unsure and a little unclear and watching them just open up to the idea of this community because of who you are. And so I just wanna, from the like depths of my soul as someone that is different, just really want you to understand how important and impactful the work that you do is in all of its entirety as a woman, not, not being transgender, but as a woman who is in her purpose to the world, you are just changing the world. And I just, I really, really need you to know that from like this corner of the world and from a ton of other corners, you know, you are, you are really profound and, and truly just, um, just a huge gift to us. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. (laughs) Well, Paula, would you tell our audience any way they can connect with you or, um, or learn more about you? You can follow you can follow me at paulastonewilliams.com. If you're interested in having me speak for something, you can go to paulastonewilliamsspeaker.com and that'll put them in touch with my speaker's agency. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's the, the prime way. You can find my book anywhere. Uh, Simon & Schuster mm-hmm. published it as a woman. Uh, and, you know, so many people say to me, it was very well received by the reviewers, um, it's not so much a book about transitioning as it, as it is a book about authenticity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dedication page is a line that was in my first TED Talk. The call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. 
So that's what it, it's a book about. But yep, PaulaStoneWilliams.com is the easiest way to follow me. Yeah, you're not, I've learned in case you're wondering, because we had, we have, you know, a little bit of a younger crowd in our following. Paul is not a big social media person. You can, I mean, I, I, DM am, I really am not. <laughs> but she, that's, that's you know, not her. So as her agent, I'm that just going to no, seriously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and and that's not going to change. I mean, like my generation, I'm on Facebook, Paul yeah. Stone Williams, easy yeah. to find me there. Yeah. But I mean, I have uh, 1600 followers. I think last time I checked on uh, instagram and i think i have posted once ever no, in I my life yeah it was and i i don't go on tiktok all the ted speakers i work with are on tiktok i have never seen their tiktok sure? yeah. no i love it i love it <laughs> yeah. but it sets you apart it sets you apart okay go to go to the website go to the website mm -hmm. <laughs> um well paula as we uh you know, the last thing that, that we always leave our people with is obviously, you know, the poem or the prayer. We always try to um, kind of close with something. But um, I, I just kind of wanted to ask our, our last, you know, question um, is when you, when you think of living your most authentic life, what do you feel like was the first step in you finding out what that looked like for you? Yeah, I think it's acknowledging the reality that the truth will set you free, but it's going to make you miserable first. Yeah, you have to embrace that, I think, to live authentically. Thank you so much for being in this space with us and taking this time with us. Oh, my pleasure. It's been delightful being with you, Chelsea. Brandon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Religious Dropouts podcast. Take a moment to relax your shoulders, unclench your jaw, and take a deep inhale. As you exhale, focus on releasing any remaining tension in your physical body. We're so glad that you are here with us today for this conversation. We hope you are able to laugh, to unpack some of your past experiences and trauma, and that you are able to find some hope to look forward to the future. We'd love for you to connect with us on social media and at our new website, religiousdropouts.com. And as always, we would love for you to share this podcast with a friend or anyone you know who might need to understand how good it feels to be a dropout. You are so loved. Have a great week.